My name is Matthew Grimley. I'm one of the history tutors here at Merton, and I just wanted on behalf of the college really to welcome you all uh, to Merton for the second of Professor Rennie Daston's series of events as Oxford's first humanitas professor of the history of ideas. We're most grateful to Francis Finlay, who is the donor for these uh, lectures, and to uh, Lord Wiedenfeld and the Institute of Strategic Dialogue for coming up with the idea for this chair and for um, facilitating it. Before I hand over to Professor Lawrence Brockless, who's going to chair today's seminar, or symposium rather, I'd just like to mention the final event in this series, uh, which is tomorrow at 1 p.m. in the um, Humanities uh, Division, uh, Radcliffe Humanities Building, which is um, what many of you who know Oxford already, or have known it for a long time, will think of as the old Radcliffe Infirmary Building. Um, and that will be a chance to hear Professor Daston in conversation with Professor Sally Shuttleworth and Professor John Christie on the subject, Writing the History of Reason. If you're going to that event, uh, it's in the Philosophy Lecture Theatre, uh, which is on the second floor of Radcliffe Humanities. So do remember not to come to Merton out of force of habit if you've been coming to these lectures uh, through the week, because it's quite a long way across town to, uh, to, to, to uh, the Woodstock Road, which is where um, that building is. Um, and that's at one o'clock, just as a recap. Today's event is a symposium on the new history of scientific experience, observing, experimenting, collecting, representing, and reading in early modern Europe. And in addition to our visiting professor, Rennie Daston, of the Max Planck Institute for the History of Science in Berlin, we're also very pleased to welcome uh, Dr. Sashiko Kusakawa of Trinity College, Cambridge, um, Professor Martin Mulso of uh, the University of Erfurt, and Dr. Simon Werrett of University College London, and also um, uh, to welcome again Lawrence Brockless, who is uh, of this parish or nearby Magdalen College. And um, unfortunately, the, the fourth member of our panel, um, Dr. Rodri Lewis of St. Hughes, has had to pull out because he's got bronchitis and his doctor has told him not to speak. So um, we're very sorry about that, but uh, um, uh, that, that means we um, will have longer to hear about our other, uh, our other presentations. So Professor Brockless is going to chair, so I'm going to hand over to him. Thank you, Matthew. Well, I welcome you all to this, uh, this evening's symposium, especially on such a, a cold night as this. I'm afraid that I only know a few of you in the audience, so when we come to the, um, the, the discussion afterwards, um, I will be reduced, I suspect, to just uh, sort of pointing vaguely in the direction of the person who's got their hand up. Anyway. Um, we're going to run this in the, the following way. Um, the three discussants will each in turn say something about their contribution to the new history of scientific experience, or rather, if not their contribution, their thoughts on this. And then Professor Daston will respond after that, the discussants in turn will be given the opportunity to add any further comments, and then I'll be handing it over to you. We're going to do this chronologically, because I can think of another way of doing it. So we're going to start with Sachiko, who has got things to say about the Royal Society. Then we're going to pass on to Martin, who has interesting thoughts on numismatics, and we'll end up 
with Simon, who is going to tell us all about James Watt. So with no more ado, given that time is passing quickly, I will ask Chico to, to come to the, to the podium and offer her thoughts on this particular theme. So thanks, Chico. Thank you very much, Lawrence, for the introduction. And I'd like to thank Dr. Grimley for making all the arrangements so that we are all here at the same time at the right place. Um, this is a hand-drawn copy of an engraving from issue number 170 of Philosophical Transactions in Ink and Wash by Thomas Kirk, drawn two years after his election as Fellow of the Royal Society. I'd like to use this example to introduce part of my current research on the visual and graphic practices of the early Royal Society. Um, but I'd like to begin by offering a brief and general overview of the uses of images at the Society. Drawings fit well with what is already known through the works of Michael Hunter, Motty Feingold, Adrian Jones, and Adrian Jones about the collective textual practices at the Royal Society through reading, write, writing, and archiving. Figures and drawings accompanied letters and papers presented at the weekly meetings. The meetings also ordered fresh drawings to be made of objects and images discussed. Some of the submitted drawings were judged to require correction, while drawings commissioned at a meeting were brought back the following week for approval. Drawings were archived in the way that letters and papers were. Those deemed important were copied into the registered book, register book. The original drawings were usually kept together with the letters, while figures of instruments and diagrams were often copied into the journal book. Thus, multiple versions of, sorry, th thus multiple versions of the same image may be found in the archives of the Royal Society, with varying degrees of fidelity to the original. Recently, Kristen Federica Frost at Oxford has shown how the figures of instruments reproduced in Thomas Birch's History of the Royal Society are based on drawings from the archives that are not necessarily the most accurate. In the case of images, there were additional destinations for archiving. For example, prints of birds sent from Germany were glued into Willoughby's ornithology kept in the library. A drawing of a monstrous birth was filed into a book of drawings which unfortunately is no longer extant. The point of such archival efforts was to enable retrieval of information in the future. A drawing of a swordfish first shown at a meeting in 1694 was brought back to a meeting eight years later in 1702. Even when a drawing had been printed as an engraving in philosophical transactions, it was the drawing that was retrieved for further examination at the society's meetings. Not all, but quite a few of the drawings received and generated by the Royal Society were published in Philosophical Transactions, mostly as a separate sheet of intaglio print. The surviving drawings record several names of draftsmen who remained invisible in print unless they were fellows or friends of fellows. The drawings were usually cut into pieces and transferred to the plate, typically using red chalk backing. The drawings were thus transformed into an engraving which was signed from time to time by the engraver, as Michael Burgers, here, engraver to this university, had done. But publication was not the end of the life of an image. It could be copied out by hand again, as in the case of Thomas Kirk's drawing. 
Kirk's is a remarkably faithful line-drawing copy of the engraving for number 170 of the Philosophical Transactions, printed in April 1685. Kirk was from Crookridge, Leeds, and part of a circle of like-minded people in York who were interested in the study of natural and antiquarian topics, which included the physician and naturalist Martin Lister, the antiquarian Ralph Thorsby, the glass painter Henry Giles, and the engraver William Lodge. Kirk was elected Fellow of the Royal Society in 1693, and his copy of a full set of philosophical transactions dating back to the first issue has survived at Trinity College, Cambridge. Perhaps engravings in some of the issues were lacking when he had acquired the set. He must have borrowed an engraving from somebody else, copied it by hand, signed it TK, dated it 1695, and inserted it into his own copy. We know that Kirk owned a manuscript entitled The Art of Limbing, either by the life, landscape, or histories, which was a partial copy of a manuscript, Miniatura, by Edward Norgate, who had served Charles I and was advisor to Thomas Howard, the second Earl of Arundel. Kirk probably copied the Norgate manuscript owned by his friend, the glass pa painter Henry Giles. The version of the Norgate manuscript held by Giles and Kirk was different from other versions, including contemporary printed editions in that it offered detailed instructions about how to master the art of drawing by copying a print faithfully. It advised a daily practice of copying a print of a master like Albrecht Dürer. While copybooks for learning how to draw proliferated in this period, as shown here in a painting by Mathieu Lenain, the Norgate Manual was explicit that the print to copy had to be by a distinguished master. Choosing a good quality print was thus important. When Kirk was visiting London in 1674, he was armed with a list of collectible prints sent to him by Giles and planned to meet up with William Lodge, the engraver, and watch him choose good prints in order to better his own judgment. We don't know what kind of prints Lodge chose, nor what prints Giles had recommended Kirk to collect, but Kirk's case certainly indicates how the print was a medium for training the eye as well as the hand. And judging from his copy of the engraving of philosophical transactions, Kirk had indeed become proficient in drawing. Kirk's case suggests the possible role of the images in philosophical transactions as training its readers' eyes and hands. It also allows us to think, how, think about how graphic skills generally available at the time might have been refined, distilled, and developed through the medium of print in a way that was specific for scientific knowledge. Further examination of the graphic ideals, skills, and practices of those who are interested in investiga investigating nature, I suggest, is one way to enrich our understanding of scientific experience in the early modern period. Thank you. Thank you. Well, thank you very much. So, with, with images, the first thing, but hold on to Martin. <laughs> So we've learned a lot about scientific practices over the past two or three decades, 
And we've learned a lot uh, less, I think, about scholarly practices, especially in the field about which I will talk here in numismatics. Um, I've found the working tools, the Handapparat, the apparatus of one of the greatest numismatists around 1700, Andreas Morell, in the State Archive of Rudolstadt, a small German town in Thuringia. This uh, apparatus consists of thousands of impressions of coins, dozens of pictorial notebooks, indexing volumes of booklets with lists and tables, and of letters from colleagues to Morell. We still have at our castle in Gotha the coins themselves that surrounded Morell when he was working in his study. Who was Andreas Morell? He was Swiss-born in Bern in 1646, made a career in Paris in the 1680s, where he developed the bold plan to draw and classify all coins of antiquity. He estimated between 20,000 and 25,000 different types of coins. Never had anyone attempted this undertaking so far. Only Hubert Goldsius had aimed at it, as Morel could learn from Goldsius' papers that he saw in Paris. Morel was especially famous for his drawing skills, but was also a profound classicist. In Paris, he could have become the curator of the world's biggest and most important coin cabinet, the one of Louis XIV. He had only to convert to Catholicism, which he, <laughs> which he didn't. So they put him into prison instead, by lettre de cachet, and he had to spend three, uh, there, there three or four years until he came loose and fled France in 1691. He found employment at the small German court of Arnstadt, where a count obsessed by coins was establishing one of the largest collections in Germany, thereby ruining the finances of his small territory. <laughs> Morel died there in 1703, leaving his huge project unfinished. Only posthumously in the 1730s and 50s appeared some parts of the Thesaurus Morellianus still with five or 6,000 depicted coins, a standard reference work well into the 19th and 20th centuries. Such a big undertaking requires sophisticated working practices and developed logistics. How is it possible for a single man to analyze the entirety of ancient coins, the number of which Morel certainly underestimated? First, there's the question of mobility. Through Morel's letters and references to specific collections in, uh, in his notes, it is partly possible to follow him through his visit from coin cabinet to coin cabinet in Paris, Switzerland, Italy, Holland, and Germany. We can also see how he exchanged information by letters or borrowed items from friends. The decisive question here is, though, about the pictorial character of the information. How is such an information being transmitted, obviously by drawings. To be an excellent draughtsman was necessary for his work because drawing always meant interpreting as well. I will give you an example. In 1683, Morel depicted in his Specimen Universae Re Numare Antique a coin by Emperor Lucius Verus with a serpent on the reverse and the name uh, Glycon. Only after studying Lucian and looking at the coin time and again, he confessed in the second edition of the book 
that he now rec recognized that the serpent's head was a human face, and he corrected his initial drawing. Why did Morel surmount other numismatists as a draughtsman? Because he was trained as a miniaturist in Bern, like other artists of that city as well, for instance, Wilhelm Stettler, who worked for the coin connoisseur Charles Patin. In Calvinism, painting of big canvases was not popular out of religious reasons, so artists often turned to minuscule objects. It's no wonder that Swiss miniaturists worked in Paris, where there was demand for their skills. In looking at how Morel depicted coins, we see that his drawings are beautiful, idealized illustrations. The fringes are made ideally round, not regarding the actual unevenness. Inscriptions are complemented, and figures are perfected. There are, of course, very different ways to make the illustrations. Goldsius, for example, did it by chiaroscuro technique, while Morel preferred pure disegno. The question is now, how can one draw these high-quality depictions under time pressure. If you're in a foreign coin cabinet and have only a few hours or even less, but want to depict dozens and dozens of coins, there's only one method to do that, to take imprints or impressions. <clears throat> Morel took imprints with glue from the air bladder of the sturgeon, the icing glass, Hausenblase in German, and recommends this technique to others. In Rudolstadt, I found four boxes with that, about 2,000 of these Isinglass imprints. Whenever he brought a number of imprints home from visiting cabinets, he could calmly copy the inscriptions and figures of the coins into his drawings. He called it Rundmachen, to make the delineations sound and perfect. Often several of these imprints were wrapped in small paper envelopes, which were carefully labeled with numbers, probably numbers that Morel ascribed to the coins, with names of emperors or their wives, or moneyers in the case of Republican coins. It seems that Morel stored these envelopes in boxes or drawers where he could easily find them. How then did Morel organize his thousands of Isinglass imprints? Neither boxes nor drawers have survived from which, we could, uh, from which we could study his storing methods. In one of his books, however, he gives advice to form series of imprints and insert them into specifically prepared books which have bufferings, cushions, paddings between the pages. There are no remains of such books in the Rudolstadt archive either, but they may well have existed. What does exist are two series of pictorial notebooks, uh, one on Republican coins and the other series on Roman imperial coins. These notebooks are quite spectacular. They are bound in a way that they could have been transported easily while Morel was traveling. The notebooks contain raw sketches of coins as well as accomplished drawings. <coughs> inside. And furthermore, printed coin illustrations that Morel cut out of numismatic works and pasted into his notebook. 
Even small passages of descriptions can be found. Sometimes on the left side there was a space for pasted illustrations or raw drawing, which then has been perfected on the right side. The notebooks on imperial coins are ordered conventionally according to the chronology of Roman emperors, the ones on republican coins according to the gentes of the moenus. Manias. They are unbound, there are unbound sheets of paper extant on which Morel delineated his accomplished drawings from the original or the Isinglass imprint, which he then cut out and glued into the appropriate page of the notebook. It seems instructive to compare or contrast Morel's visual techniques with those of other disciplines, for instance, those of architects or botanists. In botanical notebooks, there are, uh, are inserted visual representations as well, either specimen of the plants themselves or depictions of them. For in botany, you also have the problem that you cannot extensively study the object in their natural surroundings, but have to bring them or representations of them to your own place. There is current research on these kinds of notebooks. We've seen with Sashiko and also by Stefan Müller-Wille on Linnaeus, which can be compared with Morel's numismatic paper technologies. Sometimes in the notebooks, but also on the Isinglass imprint envelopes, there are traces of Morel's reference practices to other numismatic works. For instance, in the case of the Seleucus Tetradrachm, he hints to Vaillon, which means that he consulted Jean-Fois Vaillon's book, Zéloï, Kidarum Imperium from 1681, page 35. There we find a description of this coin where it is explained that the head shows Alexander the Great, while on the reverse there is a Hercules implying that the Seleucids and Alexander descended from that hero. Morel always had a great number of these numismatic standard works at hand, certainly filled with annotations of his pen. Most important, however, for Morel's working practices are a number of very provisional notebooks of lists and tables. On occasions, Morel had already started on the inside of the imprint envelopes to make lists of the coins of which the imprints were made from. To give an example, once he made Isinglass glue imprints um, and then drawings from 23 Roman coins from the time of the Flavian emperors Vespasian, Titus, and Domitian, Morel tried immediately to establish a chronological order on the, uh, from Vespasian's Judea Devicta coins from the year 70 to those coins with feature on the reverse already Titus or Domitian. But actually, it is very difficult to give here any chronological order, since all these denars are from the years 69-70. Easier to list chronologically were the provi uh, provincial coins of Alexandria, which have complicated designations of years, though, starting with an L, which was the Egyptian demotic sign for year. Morel was already able to decipher that code and filled a whole book with listings and depiction of these coins according to their chronological order. 
What did he do to establish more sophisticated orders of coins, taking into account not only a small number of imprints, but many other imprint series as well? For that, he needed the provisional list notebook to insert his partial listings with the numbers he gave to the coins in order to arrange more complete lists. Lots of hard work of comparing trial and error listening, correcting and rearranging must have been invested in this stage. Eventually, Morel arrived at provisional arrangement of the final tables he wanted to present on the plates of his printed work. For these arrangements sufficed abbreviated sketches. The final tables were then printed in the Thesaurus Morellianus. Was Morel only concerned with visual material or did he also write and arrange texts? Naturally, the numismatists' works consist to equal parts in textual analysis and in pictorial comparison. Morel's correspondence, for instance, with Spanheim shows how much he was involved in erudite discussions about meaning and context of coins. I mentioned already that there are a few descriptive passages in his notebooks. But most of the notebooks contain only drawings. Where are the texts? They must have got lost in separate booklets, maybe, but also as marginal notes in Morel's reference books. Indeed, the text passages of the Thesaurus Morellianus volumes are not by Morel himself, but by other scholars who complemented Morel's plates with them posthumously. We have only the report how Morel arranged his personal copy of Charles Patin's 1663 edition of Fulvio Orsini's Familie Romani in Antiquis Numismatibus. In fact, he used two copies of the same book. He separated the pages from the binding, cut the pages paragraph-wise into pieces, and glued them on new paper, leaving a space between the paragraphs, which he could then fill with his own additions and observations. He needed two copies of the book because he had to use the back side of each page as well to cut into its paragraphs and glue it on new paper. Then he asked the bookbinder to bind the new sheets of paper together again as a book. Morel wanted to use this enriched copy of the work as a master copy for his work on Roman Republican coins with the text by Orsini and Patin plus his own remarks. Finally, there are index volumes which also belong to the working tools on Morel's desk. The indexes refer accurately to the final arrangements of the plates. When Morel died, the plates were transferred to, the, to a publisher in Leipzig, but never appeared there. After the publisher's death, they were sold to the Netherlands, where the publisher Wettstein had to look for a philologist who would take over the huge task to write the text volumes to match the, the volumes with the plates. No easy search. To conclude, I'm still at the outset in reconstructing Morel's practices in regard to his working tools. My account was only a preliminary sketch. There is still a lot to do in order to understand in detail how Morel worked and to which extent Morel's practices are typical for his generation of numismatists. 
Moreover, it remains to clarify the similarities and dissimilarities between numismatic practices and other visual practices with pictorial notebooks. Thank you very much. Um, so thank you very much, Dr. Grimley, uh, for organising this session and to Professor Dustin for the invitation to, to be a part of this. Um, so I took my remit to be to have one image that <coughs> summed up um, what I was making of the scientific experience at the moment in my research, and I chose this one. Um, this is the table from James Watt's workshop. So James Watt, famous for his improvements of the steam engine, um, when he was an old man, he had a, uh, a garret workshop at the top of his house in uh, Heathfield near Birmingham. And when he died in 1819, the workshop was kept um, allegedly as, as it was um, uh, when he died for uh, uh, many years um, in memory of him. And then in, in 1924, it was transferred to the Science Museum. And it's just recently been, been reinstalled uh, in the ground floor of the Science Museum, so you can go and see this. Um, and um, I, I, I'm not sure if everything on this table is as it was the, the day that James Watt died. I doubt that very much. But, but what I want to do is take it as an emblem of, that reminds us of the messy nature of scientific uh, and uh, artisanal work of, of research. Um, so we've got all kinds of rubbish and bits and pieces on here. There's string, bits of old rope, uh, a hammer, a spoon, uh, a syringe, uh, and so on. And, and I take this as an emblem of the way in which um, scientific research uh, is, is um, about bricolage, about taking things that are ready to hand, in this, particularly in this case, and putting them together to produce new kinds of material culture and then ultimately new knowledge. Um, and one of the things I'm kind of fasc I'm fascinated by this aspect of science, because um, uh, on the one hand, clearly science is, is a science of order and, and very careful, meticulous um, archives, as, as uh, Professor Dastin has shown us. On the other hand, there is this kind of very messy element to it. So this is a kind of archive. I'm sure that if, if it was exactly what Watt had on his table, he would have known what every piece was about and where it was, and, or most of, uh, mostly where it was and how to access it and so on and so forth. Um, but what you've got here is the use of very mundane, local uh, material resources to do uh, scientific and, and, um, and, and technological work. And it's that kind of role of mundane, ready-to-hand, kind of everyday rubbish in science that I'm, I'm fascinated by. And, um, and the research I'm doing at the moment is really about this kind of um, mundane material culture. So we have a, a fantastic story about the exotica uh, of science and the, the importance of things that come from very far away. Um, but I'm actually interested in the things that you could just pick up around you in your everyday life in your house or in your workshop, and how those get worked into the story of the scientific revolution. Um, so we have uh, uh, James Watt's first model of the uh, separate condenser. Uh, Jane Inslee of the Science Museum tells me that that was made with the tube from an enema syringe. 
which is possibly what you can see on the table here. Um, if you read Joseph Priestley when he talks about uh, his experiments um, in, in chemistry, he's always using tubs and teacups and tobacco pipes. Uh, Stephen Hales is the same. Um, he makes a very nice ship fumigator out of porridge pots, hoppers and old bullets. Um, and so there are, there are lots and lots of ways in which um, early modern science uses this kind of thing, and that's, that's what I'm interested in. And I'm seeing this, what, what, I've, what I'm calling horribly anachronistically a kind of re scientific recycling of materials. I'm seeing that as part of a, of a larger um, uh, stewardship of materials in scientific settings that I want to try to investigate and capture. So that involves looking at, first of all, uh, the ways that mundane things are used, um, looking at repair work, um, how things are maintained, um, and also how uh, uh, um, natural philosophers exchanged goods and materials, uh, the second-hand markets for science, things like auctions and used uh, bookshops and you know, the kind of jumble sales and, and uh, flea markets of science. Um, and, and the, the uh, kind of conclusion I want to draw from this work is that the old mattered in the new science, that although the rhetoric of science was very much about novelty, about innovation, um, there was a very strong sense in the material uh, practice of science that old things were important. Um, and, um, of course, that can mean all, all kinds of different things, and my, my work wants to situate this in a story of the development of the household um, and of the, of the home as, a, as an architectural space, of the workshop, and also the history of waste and rubbish and how we deal with that uh, in over... It, the changing ways that people deal with that over time. Um, and I also want to think about this um, as, as, a, as a kind of positive action of natural philosophers. So one might say, well, the reason that they use these kinds of things, things that were ready to hand, pins and razor blades and pips and so on, um, uh, was just because they were there, it was easy. Um, but I want to suggest this is not fortuitous. It's not that they didn't have more dedicated or specialised instruments and spaces for science, but it was actually part of the, um, the philosophy of early modern science to use these things and to make them mean uh, important things for about nature. So they actually had to work to make uh, a, a kind of mess of science, if you like. Um, and uh, um, so, essentially, um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wrap up there, um, but uh, uh, clearly this isn't the only kind of thing that was being done in natural philosophy. There's always a dialogue between the old and the new in this story, um, but uh, the old part of that, I think, has tended to be a bit neglected, and that's what I want to concentrate on. So, thank you very much. Well, first of all, um, I'll echo the thanks to Mr. Finley for making this event possible and to all of you for turning up on a great day. But mostly, I want to thank most heartily um, the participants in this symposium, some indeed who have only had to cross um, a few streets 
but some who have come from Berlin, some from London, and someone who has come all the way from Cambridge, which I know by experience is no mean feat. Um, I have never taken a longer bus ride than the bus ride from Oxford to Cambridge. Um, so thank you all very much. And, and thank you all for also these um, uh, delicious morsels of um, the history of scientific experience. And I should say to all of you who are here, if, if you had announced, I think, a dozen years ago, a symposium with this title, A History of Scientific Experience, the reaction of most of our colleagues would, would have been, this is a doubly impossible topic. Um, it's first and foremost impossible because experience is protean, it is evanescent, and it is incorrigibly subjective. Um, the sheer ubiquity and massiveness of experience, even when we're asleep in a sense, there's some kind of stream of consciousness in the form of dreams, seem to defy all the efforts of historians um, to, to corral it and of course to find traces. Um, and the other, the other reason why um, you would have encountered, I think, um, massive skepticism um, on the part especially of early modern historians of science was um, the, the song sung so often by early modern empiricists themselves, which is there are words and there are things. And early modern empiricism is about overcoming words in order finally to grapple with things. Um, so the idea that there was going to be a history in words on the basis of words um, about empiricism, the study of things in the recounting of the historical actors themselves, seem positively perverse. Um, so one has to think a little bit about what made um, this kind of topic possible. And I do think it is now a flourishing and burgeoning field, and I hardly need do more than just point to what you have just heard. Um, part of this has been because um, of the mining and the extraordinary ingenuity expended on the mining of new kinds of sources. I mean, you've heard um, Sachiko on those images, Martin on those, that fabulous Nachlass, um, which makes every historian's fingers twitch um, to see it, and the objects on, um, on the table, Simon Watts' workshop table that, that Simon showed us. So um, this ability to do with, deal with new kinds of sources, um, I think, has been absolutely seminal for making this kind of work possible. Um, another, another enabling factor has been new affinities um, between the history of science and other fields. Um, one thinks, for example, of the ways in which the history of the body um, has greatly enriched this part of the history of science because of um, the kind of existence proof which the history of the senses gave historians of science about doing a part of the history of experience which had seemed inaccessibly private, um, but also literary historians. Um, the work that literary historians have done on description, that is the, the turning of experience into words, um, had a kind of refinement which um, beggared um, all of um, the 
previous work that had been done on the history of science on such texts, which had been taken as relatively um, straightforward, and of course the history of the book. And again, Martin's talk um, really gave us an insight into how much one can learn by looking at how books were um, cannibalized and put back together again, constructed, reconstructed, how we, much we can learn. Um, and, and finally, there were new perspectives. Um, I think um, Martin also mentioned this. Um, this is still ongoing, and it's a whole lot easier to do in German than it is to do in English or French. Um, so Wissenschaftsgeschichte means the waterfront. I mean, it means the history of scholarship as well as the history of science. There is such a thing as Literaturwissenschaft, and it does not bring a smile to people's lips to say it. Um, um, you cannot say a science of literature in English, and I don't think you can say la science de la littérature in French either. Um, so that kind of synthesis, which for the early modern period, all of these people, no matter what contributions they made, they were trained as bookish scholars, and those habits never left them. Perhaps this is not the case for someone like James Watts, but it is certainly the case for all the luminaries in the 17th century constellation of scientists. These people were first and foremost library scholars. Um, they learned many other things. Edmund Halley knew many, many other things than just how to read books, but he really knew how to read books. Um, and if one looks at the ways in which, and this brings me to the talks themselves, I'd like to ask some questions about them to get our discussion going. Um, if one looks at the way in which um, commonplace books and observation notebooks were kept, there is a striking similarity, and just a stone's throw from here in the Bodleian, um, well, no longer the Bodleian, I found out to my dismay that it's now been outsourced somewhere um, way into the suburbs of Oxford, but it used to be in the Bodleian. Um, James Locke's, Locke's um, Adversaria Fusica, commonplace book, um, combines excerpts that he has copied from the various books he's, he's read. He's read Boyle, and he's read Newton, and he's read various other sources, with um, his own observations and experiments. Um, and just as he gives the source of the excerpts he's copied from a book, he puts J.L., John Locke, by his own observations, so that there is a kind of similar framing and excerpting of experience and put into the, the covers of the very same book um, that um, is, as I say, um, a rather obvious bridge between the practices of the highly literate scholar um, accustomed to the second-hand experience of books and the first-hand experience um, of observation and experiment. Um, so I now turn to um, these three um, very tantalizing talks. I, I, it's my fault they didn't have much time to talk because I told each of them that they were supposed to just give one example and um, one, one image and, um, and one wishes as one heard all three that I'd allow them to go on and on and on. But um, as I say, it's my fault that they were so abbreviated. So let me try and draw out some common themes and just ask a few questions and then we'll hear the responses and perhaps then open the floor mm -hmm. for discussion. Um, so, What's really striking to me in at least the cases that Sachiko and um, um, Martin presented, the Thomas Kirk case and the case of Morel, um, is the way in which 
they make books. So um, they, they take, sometimes they, as Morel does, in a way that makes all of us wince at the thought of him cutting up all those books. Um, sometimes they cannibalize old books and make them into new books. But sometimes, I thought that the, the comparison with the herbarium was very apt. Um, they um, try to take the object of inquiry, whether it is a plant or whether it is a coin or whether it is a drawing, and try to create new books and binding them. And so my first question is, how come this doesn't look like James Watts's work table? That is, there's an obvious disadvantage of the book method, which is it, its rigidity. So one, you can get the book binder to take this thing apart. And in a sense, the cut and paste technique as applied to other people's books is a way of introducing some fluidity into the system. But um, compared to, say, the note card, this is a system which makes the kind of rearranging, especially that Morel did, really difficult. So if you're experimenting with a classification system, um, exactly the bricolage elements in which, you know, we'll take this bit of tubing and we'll solder it to um, this pipe here, and if that doesn't work, we'll take them apart and we'll add the syringe. That, that is, it's not made impossible, but it's made much more difficult. Um, I recently heard a talk by Stefan Milleville, whom, whom Martin mentioned, about how Linnaeus, in the twilight of his years, with the utmost reluctance, went from this book technology to note cards. And the reason he seems to have done so was desperation. He could feel the sands of time running out. And he felt he didn't have the time anymore for this book technology. But Stefan thinks that he did so um, with terror in his heart for the obvious reason that um, note cards can get misplaced and lost. Um, so this brings me, so that's my first question to those of you who are working with um, the less messy. Um, there seems to be a presumption of, a, of knowledge which is, and Morella seems to be the, the perfect example of this, when I am finished, this will be done for all time. No one will ever have to classify Greco-Roman coins again, all 20,000 of them. Um, the idea that we have and which is surely behind the card catalog of major libraries starting in the 19th century, that this has to be expanded, it has to be amended, it has to be changed. That seems to be refuted by the, the, the rigidity of the book technology. Um, all those little envelopes, um, and perhaps, the archives of the Royal Society, um, and certainly the objects on Watts' table. Um, all of these figures, Kirk, Morell, and Watt, face the problem of retrieval, um, the problem of finding things. Um, I think it's, it's really, it's a shame on many, many counts that Rodri can't be with us today. Um, but if he were with us, I bet he would be telling us something about um, early modern mnemonic techniques. 
and the possibilities of training one's memory in certain ways, um, ways that are completely lost to us. I mean, this is no long, longer a culture of memory, and this was clear already in the 18th century. Um, 18th century philosophers remark upon this, but there must be other ways of retrieval. Um, Shachiko said explicitly that the Royal Society archives were designed for retrieval, and this is not just a matter of someone like Morel, who is a megalomaniac, clearly, who thinks he can do this all by himself, but the Royal Society, I think, has a different view, which is that um, they are building a community of inquiry which will transcend the, any single lifetime. So the idea is while you're retrieving a drawing from an earlier meeting, this is now with a question mark at the end of it, Satiko, is that you think, ah, this could fit in to um, another discussion which we had, and this will create a longer baseline. Um, um, I remember once, I think it was the journal book of the Royal Society that I was looking at, and John Evelyn had come up with some, it was a very John Evelyn kind of story. He brought some kind of story about a sparrow that had been frozen and apparently dead on a day like today in January. And he brought the sparrow into, and the sparrow revived by a fire. This discussion goes on and on and on from meeting to meeting, and they dig up more and more examples from previous letters about, for example, um, I think it was Moray, who, um, buried a frog for a whole winter in a clay pot and then it revived in the spring. So various stories of animal resurrection and you can see them attempting on the basis of these tidbits of information that they're drawing from their own archives and from printed sources to create what we would call um, a, a, an empirical baseline. Um, I now turn to Simon Watts and I was very intrigued by what Simon said about a culture which does not see bricolage as faute de mieux. So looking at Jim Bennett up there, I think to myself, Jim knows about all those specialized instrument makers in London um, at this time, and he probably can tell us whether or not James Watt patronized them. But if I understand, Simon, your claims, your claims are that there was a positive virtue to reusing these materials. And I wanted to ask you to extend that thought. Is the positive virtue because, frankly, only old science can be done with new dedicated instruments. So if you already know what it is to have a thermometer or a barometer to measure it, yes, you can go order one from the finest London instrument maker. Um, you can perhaps ingeniously put it to new uses, but your, your compass of innovation is probably limited. So that the only way to do really innovative science is to use the old stuff that you have available. So are we, am I on the right track here? Is this part of that? That's part of the thought. Um, and the other thought is, are there cultures which are, in a sense, um, more likely to be bricolage cultures than others. So we live in a culture of excess and a lot of trash. In a culture where materials are scarce, particularly certain kinds of materials, one could imagine that quite you know, independent of science, science is a mere small subset of this, that there are um, 
there are everybody's an ingenious bricoleur because you you couldn't get by without it. So that everybody, um, as is certainly the case, anybody who's ever been camping, for example, um, suddenly learns a thousand and one uses of a little piece of aluminum foil. Um, so that that this is a culture which takes positive pleasure in not just recycling but reimagining. Um, and it does bring to mind, this is perhaps a, f a comparison far afield, but it brings to mind a lot of the pleasure that um, early modern entomologists like John Ray or Antoine, René Antoine Fachot de Réaumur or Charles Bonnet take in um, what they take to be the efficiency of insects. And they talk about how the insects do not waste anything, how everything, every little part of the insect has some purpose. So there's a kind of a combination of an aesthetic and a morality of, of total economy, of nothing ever going to waste, um, which at least resonates. This may be a wild analogy. Anyhow, I will stop there because I'm very curious to hear your responses to this. Well, thank you very much, Monica. Would you, would you three like to, to say anything? I don't know whether you want to go in order again. Um, so, Shigo, have you got any comments you'd like to bring um, to the table? Yes, I, I probably would like to. Um, may I actually recall my own pictures? Um, I just wanted to, um, in terms of um, the bookish nature of all this um, um, pictorial um, uses, um, I just wanted to confirm by, by actually saying that in this particular set of drawings, which are the, the original drawings for this engraving, um, these, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, these images are actually copied out from books, and then these four are in fact from um, drawings from observations, and in fact these are the ones that are cancelled um, and not used um, in the engraving. So in a way one can actually look at this as a sort of pictorial um, analogue of the compilation techniques that Renaissance scholars are so very used to. Um, so that was um, just one thing I wanted to point out. And another thing I wanted to, um, to say was that in terms of retrieval systems in the Royal Society, it really isn't clear how exactly this was happening in the meetings, in the sense that it seems to be a combination of looking up indexes, numerous indexes they had, um, but also from personal memory of the people who were present. Mm -hmm. And so institutional memory seemed to be carried on in, the, in, the, in person. Um, as well as on paper. The complication is, in fact, I didn't say any, uh, much, I mean, I felt I didn't have time to say how complicated the Royal Society archives are, but anybody who's worked in them would know that the journal book books have a copy, the register books have a copy, the letter books are copied. So, in fact, there are sort of, the archives were sort of copied within, within the institution, and some of them are constantly going missing. And there's a sense in which, although they are really trying to set up an archive which would be, um, be a repository for the future, 
um, they are really not in control of it. And so um, it's, it's really, um, um, so in a way, when thinking about you know, why didn't they think of doing things otherwise to get past the disadvantages of the limitation of the kind of book culture, um, it seems to me that in practice, although in, in aspiration they were hoping to ha have an excellent retrieval system, in practice even they weren't even managing to, to um, realize what they were hoping to do. Mm -hmm. um, so those would be my comments specifically to your mm -hmm. questions. Mm -hmm. Do you want to? Yeah, just a few thoughts. Uh, problem of retrieval also. Uh, yes, Morel was working alone. It was his personal system, I think, that he developed, although I still have to compare it with other remains of other numismatists and see how personal it really was. Uh, but the, the tragic thing is that uh, a couple of years after his death, the whole coin cabinet was sold from Arnstadt to Gotha. Even the furniture was sold and went to Gotha, but his apparatus remained there. And when decades after the philologists in Holland complemented his tables with, with long texts, they had no idea that there were already his, his uh, notes and, and working tools, which they could have used, but they didn't. Uh, so they really had to see only the plates and, and then to work from there. Um, uh, I'm, I made uh, this uh, as a rather simple system with, with the envelopes and, and the reference ways referencing to, to his list, but actually my impression so far is that it's maybe a bit messy indeed. So there may have been several systems that he used and maybe changed over time. And this I can find out only after I have examined hundreds of these envelopes, which I still have to do. So it's certainly not that easy. Also, these books with lists are seem to be extremely messy, and it would, it would take some time to really to, to have an idea of, of mm -hmm. how he really worked in, in detail. Mm -hmm. um, um, yes, thank you. Um, so I'll just say something very quickly to the question about rigidity. Um, so I really like the idea of this, this kind of um, baseball card approach to botany. Uh, lots of people swapping cards and things. But one one thing uh, to uh, which which I would love to know more about from you. But um, as I understand it, one of the earliest card catalogues is the catalogue of Edward Gibbon's library, in which all of the book titles and details were written on the back of playing cards. Mm -hmm. So it was a reuse. As in the Linnaeus case too. Ah, okay. So yes. yeah. So, so, um, so it is a, it's, a, it's an example of uh, recycling. Um, I know that lectures were announced on the back of playing cards as well in the 18th century. Um, you would hand them out uh, to people, because playing cards are only printed on one side. So, um, so you can, you, they will have all kinds of useful, useful uh, things. So, so um, uh, there is a kind of direct link between that kind of recycling culture and the, and the, the flexibility that you mentioned about, about the library. Um, in terms of scarcity, um, the, the kind of obvious contrast between commu of communities, some of whom uh, are more bri uh, bricolers than others, 
um, in terms of scarcity is, is, a, is a story about the, the colonies, uh, about uh, North America. Um, in the 18th century, uh, there's, a, there's a, uh, um, a book by Silvio Bedini about the North Americans as tinkerers, um, that because they are far away from the metropolis, they don't have access to the same kinds of materials that were available to the, to the Fleet Street instrument makers. And therefore, they are ingenious and inventive and um, used, say, um, um, uh, maple and cherry wood instead of brass to make a, an instrument. So that would be an example of that. However, I think there's also, um, it's very interesting to look at the way that the, the story, stories about different degrees of bricolage are used. Because what they tend to do is to say that the people in the metropolis um, weren't bricolers. The people in the Royal Society make new instruments with, with the appropriate materials. And then the colonials are kind of lesser beings who have to make things up as they go along um, and um, uh, uh, put things uh, together um, out of just local resources. And I think that, that's a kind of dubious picture. I think there's, there's kind of um, some... some uh, um, differentiating work going on in that in that description, and actually, what I would want to say is that the the people in the in the centre in the metropolis in the Royal Society in Fleet Street are just as much bricolers as the as the colonial instrument makers and navigators and so on, but that the range of materials and techniques they use might be different. So I don't want to use that 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 difference mm -hmm. in, in scarcity and bricolage to tell stories about the differences in, in empire. And then in terms of insects, also very interesting. Um, one of the things I'd like to do in this story is to tie up the history of uh, rubbish and the trivial material culture of um, uh, science with the history of um, natural theology. So, so it seems to me that natural theology is, is one way to legitimize um, a philosophy that takes things like old razor blades and pin needles and, and pips and so on as legitimate, uh, well, as, as, as useful scientific materials. Uh, so if you think of the kinds of things that appear in micrographia, for example, um, what natural theology does is basically say that's not only okay to do, but it's the way you know about the, the divine plan. Um, so that um, so the 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 kind of the insect uh, and their their um, their approach to materials uh, and the, the the kind of lack of waste is 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 um, theologizing what's going on in the kitchen in um, experimental spaces where and places like Watts well I mean Watts is a bit later but this kind of space mm -hmm. is present I want to say from the uh, from 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 the you know, at least the late 16th century, so I think that they're very tied up those two mm -hmm. stories, um, mm -hmm. and yeah, I absolutely agree that insects tell tell us much about about waste. Mm -hmm. <laughs>